This is the Thanks for Sharing podcast, the podcast where we explore all things recovery, healing, and relationship. Remember to subscribe and download episodes in the iTunes store, Google Play, or on the Podbean app. And while you're there, I'd love a review. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Thanks for Sharing. I'm your host, Jackie Pack. So it's been a while since I've had a guest on the podcast, and I am happy to announce today that I have a returning guest, one of my fellow CSATs, and somebody that I look up to and admire as a therapist and learn from, uh, Mari Lee. She's been on the podcast before. She's a LMFT and a CSAT uh, practicing in the state of California. Welcome, Mari. Hi, Jackie. Good to be back. Nice to be here with you and all of your listeners today. I so appreciate you coming on. I was telling Mari as we, you know, before we hit record, I've missed kind of connecting with and seeing my CSAT people. We haven't been in person for a couple of years, but, you know, as I was listening to, and, you know, my kids are, you know, 19 to 26. And so I would hear some of their discussion about the Johnny Depp and Amber Heard trial. I haven't watched a lot of it myself. I've probably read more than I've watched, but when I thought maybe I'm going to do a podcast about this, I thought I'm going to reach out to Mari because I know her and I probably have some similar viewpoints and it'll just be a great discussion that I think maybe is not happening enough as people are tuning into and watching and discussing on, I don't know, TikTok or wherever people are discussing this nowadays, that I think maybe they're missing a deeper piece So I'm hopeful that that is part of our discussion today. And I just, you know, when I was thinking about that podcast episode, I thought, I think I'm going to reach out to Mari and and she'll help me have the other side of that conversation that I want to have. So thanks again for agreeing to be here. Oh, my sincere pleasure. I think it's an important conversation. And like you, you know, the younger people in my life have been discussing this. I've watched some snippets, Mm -hmm. uh, mainly related to things, uh, topics that have come up in my clinical practice and particular sessions, especially around domestic violence. I'm not sure if you know, Jackie, but my first specialization as a therapist was in domestic violence. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. And I was certified in that first before any other certification. And then I led uh, groups for many years for first for male perpetrators of domestic violence, then female perpetrators of domestic violence, and then parents. And so I have uh, quite a background in that. But beyond that, I think this conversation is so important because we have been living in a world of trauma, certainly the last couple of years with COVID and the impact on our world, right? Mm -hmm. And then what's going on in Ukraine. And of course, you know, all of this vicarious trauma does impact people who um, hold that non-integrated, non-processed trauma within them, whether we're talking about somebody like, you know, on the public display, like Johnny Depp and Amber Heard, but others, you know, that are not on the world stage, Mm -hmm. you know, within their own homes being, you know, sort of stuck together, especially the early part of 2020, where there is, you know, the, that non-integrated trauma that triggers sometimes, unfortunately, violence, especially if addiction is present. Right. I didn't realize that you had that background, but how even more lucky I am to have you as a guest and bringing that perspective that you had working in that first area of your Yeah, my pleasure. It's a a complex area for sure. And I think, Jackie, what's been disheartening, again, like you, I haven't 
it's just really not my nature to be a spectator, you know, for a trial like this, but because it was coming up and there were some triggers with clients and sessions, you know, it's important, you know, as therapists that we keep ourselves educated on what's going on in our world and certainly in, in, you know, social media and so forth. And I think for me, the real heartbreak beyond the obvious trauma that happened, it seems to be, I don't know, neither you or I are their therapists. So I, I want to be cautious about my speculation, but it certainly seems like there was trauma that was perpetrated on both of their sides, whether it was verbal violence or physical violence, whatever that is, you know, allegedly, these are individuals understanding their stories. You know, I didn't know much too much about it, but heard through the grapevine and through sessions and whatnot, some of their um, stories and so much trauma, right? In those early years on both sides that would have impacted ways of regulating, communicating and attaching. Right. And I'd want to just clarify when you're talking about non-integrated trauma, right? It's kind of what we're seeing play out with both, you know, Johnny Depp and Amber Heard where early in their life, it sounds like the families that they grew up in, there was some violence, there was abuse, you know, that would be experienced to young kids as terrifying, really. I mean, sometimes when I listen to some of the snippets, I'm like, that that's just, that's terrifying. I mean, I know that I grew up in a home where there was domestic violence. And so I, I know the terror that comes from having that come your direction or seeing that go to a sibling's direction or even between parents, you know, that's a terrifying situation. And, and as we talk about trauma, you know, like therapists who are trauma informed and do trauma, you know, therapy, we're talking about kind of integrating that in a way where it's not unresolved and current and kind of active with no ending in the body. Would you add anything else to that? Yeah, beautiful, beautiful, Jackie. Yes, I agree. And and I'm also a survivor of domestic violence. And that is why I had a lot of passion for both perpetrators and victims of domestic violence, and why I felt it was really important to work with both sides. And, you know, with female perpetrators and male victims, male perpetrators, female victims, really what we're talking about at the core of this is you know, woundedness. Mm -hmm. And so when we talk about non-integrated trauma, we're talking about somebody who doesn't really understand altogether what is informing, right? Their behaviors, their choices, their motivations, how they regulate. And then even if they have an idea or a very good idea and a lot of insight about, well, I make these choices because of the family that I was raised in, or these are the choices because of the experiences I've had. Just, you know, gaining insight doesn't necessarily mean that we are integrating that trauma. So without going into too much, you know, science and brain science around, you know, neurochemistry and our nervous system, for anyone who might be listening, just thinking about that trauma hanging out in the body, you know, it's going to affect our adrenals. And so if we think about, okay, adrenal, the adrenal glands, right? Add is above renal kidneys. So these are the adrenal above the kidneys, the adrenal glands there. They kind of look like little snow hats, right? Mm -hmm. And so through a series of processes within the body, the adrenals, you know, are sort of alerted to release cortisol and adrenaline in the body and both I sort of think about adrenaline and cortisol as best friends, right? Besties with very different responsibilities. So adrenaline would take that emotional 
content of an outside activating event. So the rage or the fear or the horror or the humiliation, whatever that is. And it is sort of like a little, I don't know, like little treadmill up to the amygdala, which is a part of the limbic system, a very sensitive, tiny little bean shaped part of, of the limbic system. And so it's like, oh, you know, the amygdala is activated and I feel all of these feelings from this outside event that has happened. Somebody, you know, yelled at me or there's a fight going on or someone seems drunk and that's activating some trauma within me. But the amygdala is not there to create a narrative. It has no way of creating narrative. It's just there to hold the emotional content. And that's what cortisol is there for, right? It takes that sort of zips up from the adrenals picks up the rest of that package, if you will, right, from the amygdala and escorts that up to the hippocampus. And the hippocampus is that memory center, among other things, but primarily the memory center. And so if we have a highly activated person with a high level of cortisol going on in their body, and if you kind of picture cortisol as like maybe like a you know, Federal Express or UPS, you know, delivery person, it's like bing, 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 bing on the doorway of the hippocampus saying, here, take this, take this, make sense of this. But the hippocampus has these receptors that pushes away high levels of cortisol because cortisol, high levels like that will shrivel that hippocampus. And again, we do not want a shriveled hippocampus. That's our memory center. So high levels of cortisol from non-integrated trauma impact all areas of the body and brain and including, you know, if we think about that early onset dementia, Parkinson's, so many parts of the body, including mortality, when it comes to cell replication, DNA, what are called telomeres at the end of the DNA strands, which are highly affected by cortisol, high levels of cortisol. So when we talk about non-integrated trauma, this means trauma that is hanging out in the body that is triggering an outside negative event happens, whatever that might be, anything from a flat tire, a little T trauma to a big T trauma, like, you know, being beaten as a child. And so when all of this is hanging out in the body, we as therapists work with human beings and all of their woundedness coming in and helping them right vertically, horizontally, the left and right hemisphere of the brain, the bilateral stimulation, for example, through EMDR therapy, and then really working on that vagus nerve, vagal toning, and then of course, somatic work, the physical body. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot in, in working with a human being who has, you know, a lot of trauma from their early experiences and helping them integrate that trauma. It's beyond cognitive tools or goals or, you know, talk therapy is very helpful. It's really about that mindfulness-based work and specific trauma therapies that we do to help that human being integrate their trauma so that they are a more integrated person very present and aware and understanding of what's driving those, driving that activation, right, Jackie, so that they are more responsive versus Mm -hmm. reactive. And it feels like, again, without knowing these two hurting individuals with Johnny Depp and Amber Heard, just sort of using these people as example right now, it feels like these are very highly reactive people that are clearly triggered in trauma, I think. Right. 
which again, usually when we see kind of the integration of these early experiences and some healing begin to happen. I mean, that's a very simplified version from what you just expanded on, which I really appreciate your expansion on that. Then I think, you know, we, we tend to see kind of very reactive people, right? It's not, they're not maybe able to respond in a way that is maybe coming from a higher awareness, which you were talking about with the mindfulness base and being able to kind of respond from that window of tolerance, being able to be maybe be firm with boundaries or to, you know, kind of use a firm voice without, you know, verbal abuse or name calling that type of stuff. And so instead of just kind of reacting, which again, is usually thought of as more that reacting piece as kind of that maybe non-integrated part of the trauma that is just kind of reacting to these perceptions. And again, that's, I think it's important to say it. Sometimes it's based on perception, not the accuracy of that perception. We're defending against, you know, what maybe we have experienced. And so we're heightened in our awareness around those types of things that we need to defend against. But with that heightened awareness, it maybe skews our perception. Yeah, beautifully stated. You know, I think it comes down to sometimes the difference between coping mechanisms and defense mechanisms, right? Mm -hmm. So when we think about, you know, little ones, right, these little children, all of us, right, Mm -hmm. who have grown up, uh, or many of us, I should say, who have grown up in unsafe family systems, right, or family systems where there wasn't consistency, predictability, some sense of unsafety, maybe the family system was intact, but there was some other system in that child's life, a school system, or a church system, or a social system that was unsafe, where bullying was going on, or some other type of abuse, mental abuse, physical abuse, sexual abuse, some sort of abuse with that little human being. And so children are, you know, truly amazing because they develop these coping mechanisms. So some children will develop coping mechanisms where they become the golden child. I'm going to get straight A's. So I never am on the wrong side of dad's rage, you know, or I'm going to be humorous. I'm going to be the one that makes mom laugh when she's, you know, depressed and suicidal, or I'm going to be the one that runs around and is, you know, doing all the heavy lifting, the parentified child hiding the vodka bottles or whatever that looks like. Right. Mm -hmm. Or maybe I'm going to be that, that child who might be considered the black sheep, right. Or the rebel in the family system. That would have been me by the way, when I was young, who is really acting out the family pain. So maybe they're teaching school or they're doing drugs or they're doing things that, you know, are rebellious and really trying to act out the family pain. What are other children might, you know, numb out, right? So if we think about that polyvagal ladder, that ladder of, you know, trying to move clients up to ventral vagal, that's safe and social and secure. And, you know, we have children sometimes that are really at the bottom rung, that dorsal vagal just really shut down and sad, sometimes even suicidal, or they're just disappearing. They're dissociating into online pornography or video games or drugs or whatever it is, right? To try and find that coping mechanism that will keep them safe in this unsafe family system. 
And so I think that there is some brilliance to that as a child, you know, finding some way of escape. And then what happens if we don't examine the trauma that scaffolds those coping mechanisms that are developed, if we don't begin to examine that trauma, trying to integrate that over time, as we move into higher adolescent, you know, 16, 17, 18 years old, and then of course, into young adulthood, those coping mechanisms begin to do what I call fossilize into defense mechanisms. Mm -hmm. And defense mechanisms don't keep us safe anymore in our relationships. They keep us stuck and sick. And these patterns of, like you said, Jackie, perception, perceiving, or even moving toward unsafe Mm -hmm. um, and dangerous relationships, that trauma replication that happens over and over and over again that we see with our clients, right? Yeah. Yeah. I think sometimes that um, I've talked before on the podcast about kind of that trauma repetition or betrayal bond, or um, I think at one point it was called compulsive repetition, where I think there's an, maybe an attempt to try to end the story, right? End the trauma story by engaging with somebody who is somewhat similar, or sometimes I say that script, you know, is just flipped to the opposite. So still emotionally unavailable person, but instead of being emotionally unavailable and dangerous, they're just emotionally unavailable and completely offline. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. And that intensity, right. trying to find a, you know, maybe a better ending. And instead we just, you know, sometimes I'll say trauma can be the gift that just keeps on giving, but I think it's also an invitation to heal and to, you know, go back to some of the things that maybe we lost in our coping mechanisms as a kid and reclaim those other parts that maybe didn't get developed because our coping mechanism overdeveloped this skill. Yes, I agree. Yes. And doing that kind of parts work, that inner child work with clients mm-hmm. is part of that integration of trauma, right? I think about it as repairing and sometimes reparenting in some ways that inner child. And it's interesting, right? Because we see, you know, we can see on public display, not just, you know, Amber Heard and Johnny Depp, but other couples that we've seen, you know, throughout, you know, decades really um, play out these wounds. And it's interesting to see people who really want so much they they deeply long for intimacy you know to be known to be accepted to be supported to be loved but that's the very thing that they're afraid of too and so they continue to you know move through what could be intimate relationships and then their intimacy is then sort of morphed into this you know toxic intensity where there really is not an intimacy there. It's two people in pain, creating more pain, which becomes sort of the glue, this intensity glue that keeps them together, which has nothing really to do with intimacy. Intimacy requires, you know, healthy integration. It requires vulnerability. It requires humility. And that's not easy to do when you are defended and guarded for understandable reasons for those people who are, who are still in their trauma, you know? And that's also, I think sometimes where the addiction piece can come in, right? As we start to age, maybe in the teen years or even into the adulthood years, again, we, we start to, you know, maybe 
seek substances as a way to continue to help us maybe not be aware of the things that we experienced or to kind of numb maybe the fear as we have the potential to maybe move into healthier relationships outside of our family. Um, but it's quite unnerving, right? Or it can kind of rattle us when then we're around people that we don't have to protect. And it's just exhausting, right? Because we're used to having these high defenses and all of a sudden maybe we don't need them. Mm-hmm. We don't quite know how to operate or how to be social. And so, you know, we can rely on substances or, you know, and you mentioned online pornography to try to meet some of those core issues that instead we have core wounds around. And then that becomes part of the relationship as well. Right. Yes. Beautiful. Yeah. I think so too, Jackie. And I always, you know, when I'm working with people struggling with addiction, whatever it is, process addiction or substance abuse, you know, one of the things I, I remind them in their process of recovery, you know, and it is a, you know, very brutal path at times that recovery process is without trauma, there is no addiction, right? There is no addiction without trauma. And I think about Dr. Gabor Mate's work, who I just love his work so much. And he really talks about, you know, it's not, you know, how could you be addicted to this, but given your past, how couldn't you be? Right. Right. And so I think when we can meet people in a place of compassion, right, really move into a place of compassion and help them reduce that shame around whatever the addiction is, if if it's an addiction to love or or sex, or money, or fame, or, you know, youth, or, you know, drugs, alcohol, or whatever. Or even like you were talking about, the intensity. I mean, that in and of itself can somewhat be addictive, yes. right? Yes, all of that. And, and Right, and then, thank you, yes, and then move into that place of compassion. That's, to me, what has been the largest tragedy, at least for me, the vicarious trauma that I've experienced in the small amount of following this very sad trial of Johnny Depp and Amber Heard is that the public consumption, it's really kind of grotesque Mm -hmm. and the memes that have been, that have come out of this and the, you know, how people are just gobbling up and, you know, scapegoating and making jokes about it's as if our society has lost any compassion Mm -hmm. the ability to see trauma when it's right in front of them and are really mistaking all the time, the difference between horror and humor. What's happening really is horrifying when you hear some of this information. Mm -hmm. And I would imagine, I don't know, I would imagine somewhat humiliating for both of them. And yet on a larger public scale, it's just really grotesque, you know, what I'm seeing. And what is so sad about that is any victim of domestic violence, male, female, you know, non-binary, whoever that victim is that is watching this, the larger message that they will get is, ah, I better be quiet. I better not say anything because I won't be believed I'll be humiliated, I'll be beat up, I'll be called crazy or hysterical, or I'm, if it's a male, you know, I'm a man, and then I'll be emasculated. And you know, what a wussy, how could he put up with that, you know, all of this stuff. So no matter what the gender is, any victim looking at what's happening, this public display that's so horrific, 
not even so much the trial, but the responses to the trial and the team Amber, the team Johnny, you know, all of that. It's just the most base part of humanity. And now we can't ask that question any longer. Well, why did he wait so long to come forward if he was a victim? Why did she wait so long to come forward? Why? <laughs> this is why. Right, right. I mean, I, I do think too, you know, for those listening who, you know, maybe this isn't your story, but you have been consuming this in a way of entertainment. And, and some of that, I mean, again, my young adult children, I think somewhat are consuming it as entertainment. And some of that is maybe just their age and the maturity that has and has not happened for them at those ages. Yeah, and trying to have conversations with them and saying, you know, this is a deeper issue than this. Like, hey, I think you're missing this part. They know parts of my story, right? I'm like, this is much deeper than what we're getting on, you know, the sound bites. Um, and, and they know that, right? And so I, I think it's also important to be, if you're, you know, an adult to be able to say, hey, wait a minute, let's stop and let's bring not just our you know, um, entertainment side on, but let's bring our feeling side on. Cause I think that's going to change how we consume information. But I think too, we have to be aware of what we're exposing ourselves to. Yes. That, mm-hmm. that maybe desensitizes us to, yeah. yes. to mm-hmm. the unfold in, you know, the news or just online or wherever we're consuming it. That is this information that we want to be desensitized to. Yes, I I think that is so important, right? That vicarious trauma of just even the consumption, Mm -hmm. you know, even through social media, which I really appreciate Lady Gaga's definition of social media as being the toilet of the internet. And isn't that the truth? Sometimes, you know, it's a great place to stay connected or to share or to learn even, but sometimes, Yeah. yeah, it's just a trash pit. And, you know, even seeing, you know, people in my own contact list, you know, some of the stuff that they posted, you know, just making their broad decision about who the winner of this trial was without having any information, without knowing them, you know, and I think we as clinicians, as therapists, we have to be very, very careful Mm -hmm. about if these are not my clinical clients, they're not yours to my understanding, Jackie. And so I don't get to make some diagnostic assessment of either of these hurting human beings, that's up to their therapists and their clinical team. And that's most the, of those diagnostic assessments take time. Like the, they take time. As a member of the general public, watch this trial and decide what is or what is not the diagnosis, right? Like no, no. it's trained. I mean, usually you have to be spending time with this person. And so, yeah, I, I think sometimes we're getting to this place where the average person, maybe based on social media, thinks that they have far more knowledge about like diet, you know, mental health diagnoses than we could actually get from social media. Right. And also looking at, yes, exactly. And not really examining the confirmation bias. Right. right. So if you are, I don't know if you're Bob from somewhere, you know, in the U S who's watching this and you were hurt by a woman that looked a little bit like Amber Heard or somehow humiliated or, you know, didn't get chosen for the date. And you're not aware of some of those earlier woundings. Yes, maybe they're smaller T traumas, or maybe they're bigger than that. 
And then there's this confirmation bias based on non-integrated trauma where it has to be her fault. Of course, look at her. She's crazy. Look at all of this stuff. Or if you're a woman who maybe was wounded in a relationship, maybe the person you were with was narcissistically challenged in some way. And then you hear all of these terms being thrown around like borderline personality, narcissism, all of this. And you might have that confirmation bias. Oh, well, it has to be his fault. Look at him. It's this way. When in fact, none of us, not you, not me, none of us on the broader social scale, we're behind closed doors with this couple, we are not their therapists. And we really should not be weighing in on their mental health or team anything. If there's a team, it's team trauma, team tragedy, especially Jackie, when you consider that on average, 20 people per minute are physically abused by an intimate partner in the United States. So if we do the math on that during one year, this equates to more than 10 million women and men, 10 million in one year, 20 per minute. This is sobering information to think about. Absolutely. It is. And I think, you know, this is where, when we're hit with, you know, sobering numbers, I mean, I know we learned this maybe from the pandemic too, that Americans have a hard time, not just Americans, but maybe people in general have a hard time kind of digesting really large numbers. Mm-hmm. And I think that's also true, you know, with domestic violence statistics. And again, a lot of people will tend to believe those who falsely report when the numbers are nowhere near what's actually happening, right? But they'll, they'll believe that as a way of kind of protecting themselves from having to look at something that is uncomfortable or really distressing. Yes, to read those numbers and to, to say like, wow, this is how many that's happening to in a year. Right. In a year. I mean, you know, we have all of these statistics, you know, there's research to back this up and anybody can, can locate these statistics, but what's, and maybe you can put these in the show notes, but you know, when we think, you know, some of the stats that are sobering are on just a typical day, right? Just a regular day like today, there will be more than 20,000 phone calls placed to domestic violence hotlines, mm-hmm. right? So we can break the numbers down in, in smaller ways. One in four women and one in nine men experience severe intimate partner physical violence, right? One in four women and one in nine men. And so we can think about our circles. I think about my circle of friends and yeah, many have experienced some sort of physical, sexual, or emotional violence, both men and women Mm -hmm. in my life. And that is the real tragedy here is to, to help people heal their trauma so that they don't then go and traumatize others with, with their wounds. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, Jackie, as you and I know too well, we live in, you know, a wonderful country, but a country that doesn't value mental health all that much, right? Where we should have access to mental health for anybody who's gone through this type Mm -hmm. of woundedness. It's, it's a real shame. Right. And we're also, I was reading an article a couple of weeks ago that was saying, we also have a mental health professional shortage. So I think we're seeing higher rates of people seeking mental health services than before because of the times we're living in. Yeah. And, and we also have a shortage of those professionals, unfortunately. So 
And we have professionals who are, especially over the last two years through the pandemic, who are burned out. You know, I, I know both supervisors and, and, you know, I do a lot of consulting with therapists from, well, certainly in the U S but around the world. And whether it's therapists that I work with in Canada or Australia or South Africa or the UK, my colleagues are tired, they're exhausted. And we are all doing all we can to take on as many clients and and help people who are in pain. But yeah, it makes it difficult at times. That's for Mm -hmm. sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I know a lot of mental health professionals who probably just because of where things stand currently probably have a few more clients than they normally would take. Right. But Mm -hmm. they're they're feeling like, well, I've, I've got to take some more just because so many people are trying to find services and having a difficult time. And so maybe operating with a slightly higher caseload, but with still highly emotional issues that we're sitting with. And yeah, you've got to also balance that with, you know, are you caring for yourself in ways that doesn't burn you out or take you out of the field? Yeah, exactly. And that's, you know, that can be a a juggle and a, a difficulty, but it's so important as you and I both know. And I think about also the client's not all of my clients, some of my clients did really well through the pandemic and others not, they really struggled, you know, which is understandable, but, you know, I've heard this time and again from other colleagues, and I'm sure you have as well, where we're seeing an uptick in addiction where a client may have been sober for a long time, certainly an uptick in suicides, an uptick in, you know, anxiety disorders, depression, certainly domestic violence is on the rise, especially during when people were sheltering in. And so, you know, you take two wounded people who don't have a lot of tools, who may or may not have a personality disorder, who may or may not be dealing with addiction and kind of stick them together. And yeah, things are going to happen in that case, again, driven by trauma, right? I had a friend of mine, you know, when we were seeing, they were reporting early in the shutdown from the pandemic, higher rates of domestic violence. And she asked me, she says, well, why aren't we seeing higher rates in child abuse? Right. So I just want to clarify it. I mean, I said to her, because the people who would report that are not seeing these kids. Right. But mm-hmm. if domestic violence rates are increasing, it stands to reason that so are child abuse rates, right. That home oh, yes. is not a safe oh, yes. place for anybody. Uh-huh. Um, yes. There's domestic violence, but you know, typically, you know, teachers might be seeing it. I mean, if the kids were going to therapy and then that stopped or whatever, but people who, you know, are kind of these mandated reporters who would typically be the ones reporting it Mm -hmm. weren't seeing the kids. That's right. Coaches. Yes. Therapists, because if dad or mom lost the job and then Mm -hmm. we can't afford therapy anymore or, you know, we're homeschooling or whatever the case may be, you're absolutely right, Jackie. So for sure, for sure, there was an increase in, in child abuse as well. And we're just starting to see the fallout of divorces and breakups and sometimes lawsuits. And it's, it's tragic. I, I wish that we could come back in our humanity to compassion. And when we watch something like this, whether it's a snippet or we are you know, acting as if this is a spectator sport, I'm talking about the Amber Heard and Johnny Depp trial right now, that we could approach that with more compassion for what we're seeing. It's, it's sad that it's being thought of as entertainment because it, it isn't, I don't find it entertaining at all. I think it's, yeah. it's really sad. 
I think too, and I think this plays out here, just some of our maybe discomfort. I understand, you know, sometimes for human beings, it can be uncomfortable to like arrive at a maybe conclusion of, I don't know, right. Or I need to know more, but I don't know more, right? Like that lack of maybe a firm conclusion. And again, this is somewhere where confirmation bias plays in, where in the face of like, I don't know, we're likely to rely on what we think we already know. Again, with confirmation bias, you know, even if we were given factual information that disputed our bias, we would still choose our bias Mm -hmm. instead of Mm -hmm. the, the factual information that maybe Um, challenges that or even disproves that. But I think it can also then, I think sometimes it shifts us maybe from, you know, whatever story we get caught up in or that we're playing out from our own life that kind of is all dependent on, I have to know, I have to make sense of, right. Where maybe the hippocampus, like you were saying, is saying, "I, I can't take all of this in and make meaning of it but we're trying to make sense of something instead of sitting with, I wonder, Mm -hmm. or Mm -hmm. I don't know. Right. Like sometimes I find if I get triggered with something or maybe some anxiety gets triggered, uncertainty gets triggered for me, shifting it into curiosity Mm -hmm. and kind of wondering without needing a conclusion, right. Or a like, here is what I know shifts the energy for me. Yes. Yes. That compassionate, yeah. That compassionate curiosity, right? Because I know I'm a person who's sort of wired and wanting to know outcomes, right? And a lot of, a lot of human beings are wired that way. We like to manage outcomes, predict outcomes. And when I can increase my distress tolerance that I may not be able to manage that outcome. And I can't really predict that outcome. The best thing I can do is be present with myself and notice what's going on with me. And yes, to your point, notice my confirmation bias. I know sometimes when I've mentioned the statistic that the presence of a gun in a domestic violence situation increases the risk of homicide by 500%, right? So I'll just leave that there and the listeners will notice perhaps their own confirmation bias like you know if you're rejecting that out of hand that can't possibly be true that if there's a gun in the home it increases the risk of homicide by 500 percent where is that bias being confirmed why is it important to hold on to that bias versus oh wow let me move into compassion and curiosity about that and learn more about that you know, that's interesting. doesn't mean that we have to rip the guns out of everybody's hands, but maybe, I don't know. We, we want to think about that, that, right? I think too, some of that, maybe that need to feel like, because we know after a mass shooting, gun purchases increase. And so mm-hmm. somehow there's a thinking that we're better able to protect our family by having guns, right. Instead of understanding the risk that it increases Mm -hmm. uh, homicide, right. Right. That maybe we start protecting differently. Maybe our protection starts being prevention. Yes. Right. Exactly. Education, Mm -hmm. prevention, maybe some checks along the way. Definitely Jackie. Yeah. Yeah. Another thing that I think is important, right. As we've watched this Amber Heard and Johnny Depp, case unfold. And from what I understand, it's kind of wrapped and they've done closing arguments and 
there's not like a decision yet or a, a finding in this case. But I think, you know, one of the things that's important that we often lose sight of is these are people. Yes. And we may have seen them playing parts in movies, you know, they're, they're actors and an actress. And, and yet behind that and behind whatever diagnosis is or is not applicable, again, none of us are in a position to be handing out diagnoses and finding those credible. But I mean, you, you've probably worked with clients who have cluster B personality disorder. I've worked with them. I, I don't know that you, you know, spend a couple of decades in the field and you haven't yes. had to walk in your office. Yes. And one of the things that's always important to understand, right, is that they are people. That's right. They have tragic stories, but they're people. And I think that that gets lost when we watch things like this for our entertainment value. I think we then lose sight of the fact that we're people. That's and right. this is not a good form of entertainment for us. That's right. These are human beings, right? With all the, you know, the same vulnerabilities and the same challenges that any human being faces. Yes, they may have more fame and recognition and money and all of that. But along with that lifestyle, like you said, you know, at some point when you've worked in this field, as long as you and I have, you will work with clients with cluster B. Uh, so for listeners, that would be personality disorders. And then certainly me living here in Southern California and close to Hollywood and the entertainment industry, you know, you work with people in these professions and what you come to realize is these are people that are vulnerable people that have experienced the highs and lows of life. The, the joys, the heartbreaks, and um, just because they have more money in their bank account doesn't necessarily mean they have more joy or satisfaction. It just doesn't. Right. And they are human beings. They are not actors on a stage. And I do think that every single human being deserves to have respect and privacy and consideration of their pain points. And I hope that again, um, I know I keep bringing this point up that we collectively could move into more compassion. And I liked what you brought up to Jackie about curiosity, you know, just more curiosity, not curiosity as an, Ooh, tell me more salacious gossip, but curiosity about, huh, that's interesting. What I'm seeing here. I wonder what's going on inside of me. What is this triggering? Why do I feel so much rage toward her or why do I feel so much rage toward him? Or why do I feel an affinity toward him and not her, et cetera? And get curious about that. Yeah. So in your work with both male and female victims, perpetrators of domestic violence, any differences that you noticed, any similarities that you found as you worked with both genders and both sides of the equation? Yeah, it's a really good question, Jackie. You know, I do less of that work now. You know, that was at the beginning of my career. And I, and although, believe me, I see that pop up at least annually with, with somebody that I'm working with. And of course, we know with a lot of our clients, there is domestic violence in their backgrounds because they were witness to that as children. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I remember the very first uh, domestic violence group that I was assigned to before I was licensed doing my clinical internship was with male 
perpetrators of domestic violence, and it was an alternative prison sentence. And it was little old me, <laughs> with 21 guys in this dusty old conference room in this little agency in Pasadena, California. And it was nerve wracking. You know, I'd gone through my certification program. I think I had graduated grad school by then. I don't know. It was somewhere in the mix mm -hmm. of that. And I remember with shaking legs walking up to sit down and try and figure out how I'm going to lead this group. And it was really nerve wracking in the first few months, no lie about that. But after that first year, I just fell so in love with group work and mm -hmm. so just felt so much respect and compassion for these men that were coming in with their own stories of horror, some men in Prada shoes, some men in flip-flops, some men with tats all over and track marks, and some men, you know, in their, you know, very expensive suits and Mercedes key rings, you know, just all walks of, of life and men and, and watching these men have breakthroughs and struggles and their vulnerabilities. You know, I just, I, I really fell in love with group work and, and wondered then, right, when I started then about a year later working with female perpetrators, if there was a difference. And there are some differences, yes, in terms of some of the challenges that women face, right? Some of the ways that they're looked at, some of the ways that some of the women in my domestic violence perpetrator group, the women that were perpetrating violence, or there because they had perpetrated violence, there had been shoves and slaps and kicks and insults and threats and derision and humiliation and rape of these women. And then it was like, I'm picking up this paring knife and I'm stabbing you through the hand. I can't take it anymore. And then unfortunately, or fortunately, I could say, you know, then this woman is now taken to jail and now this is the sentence that she is facing. And thank goodness for therapy groups where there can be an alternative to a prison sentence for first-time offenders. So that was a story that I saw with a lot of these women where no excuse, you know, not giving anybody a free pass ever for violence. It's never acceptable right. ever. But a lot of their stories had to do with just really kind of collapsing or activating into this behavior. I would say that's maybe a difference, but I also wanna support that difference with the similarity was every single person that I work with in those groups over many years, you know, that would come into group, this was a year long group that they would take and then in a whole new, you know, cycle of new clients would be coming in and it was just endless cycle, right? Of mm -hmm. these perpetrators was trauma, unresolved trauma. Mm -hmm over and over generations, this generational baton of woundedness and trauma and rage and fear and shame and addiction passed on from father to son, son to daughter, daughter to, you know, it just yeah. sisters, it just goes on and on and on in this family tree. And when you have one, just even one person who's brave enough to say enough, I'm done. It's not okay. I cannot do this anymore. I must take ownership of this behavior. I must do something different here, even if it means that part of the consequence is jail or part of the consequence is whatever it is. But I'm going to figure this out, integrate this trauma, work with a therapist, do what I need to do to learn the tools because this baton gets buried here. It will not be passed on. 
Right. That's the epitome to me of courage in human beings. Right. I love the way that you said that. I often will say to, you know, clients, I mean, trauma stories also have this background narrative around power and being powerless, you know, in childhood trauma and somehow flipping that script and feeling powerful, which I think is where sometimes that escalating or collapsing into those violent behaviors can come into play where I refuse to be powerless. Mm -hmm. And so this behavior comes out of me that maybe I didn't know I had, maybe I do know that, right. And it's a repeated pattern um, that I've come to know, but I don't know how to, I don't know how to shift it. Right. And again, when, when people will say this has to be addressed, or maybe they're given the opportunity and the court says, go here. Right. And often some of those programs can be highly effective, But I think what we're looking for is this shifting instead of this from powerless to powerful, it's a shifting into personal empowerment. Mm -hmm. And that shift comes where we start to say, you know, again, I mean, I talk a lot in addiction and in recovery, we talk about, you know, taking tragedy or suffering or extreme challenges and making meaning out of those. I mean, that's kind of that process from addiction into recovery. And I think it's similar with trauma. Like when we start to say, I've got to make something more of this than just a repeating pattern that I pass down to my kids or the next generation. Yeah. Beautiful. I love that. Yeah. It's just so important to break that, break that cycle. And then, and nobody can do that without support. At least Mm -hmm. I've not met anybody and I couldn't, Right. it is, you know, vitally important to do that. And, you know, I think about what comes up for me is uh, there's a really good book called the gift of fear by an author uh, by the name of Gavin de Becker, really good book. And Gavin de Becker is a very interesting person in our American fabric, you know, not well known, but had, you know, put the security together for presidents and many famous people. And he's just really interesting. And I the think he says a, in this book, cause I've read this book a couple of yeah, times. Yeah. He, it's really a page security. and inside, the, sorry. And in the book, one of the statements that he makes that's so compelling to me is that, you know, one of the greatest fears for women is to be killed at the hands of a man And one of the greatest fears for men is to be humiliated by a woman. And so when we talk about humiliation and men, you know, whether it's a reception of humiliation or they feel humiliated because they were left or laughed at or written about or whatever that is, there will be a powerful pushback on that because that is one of the greatest fears. And for women, you know, that greatest fear of being hurt or killed at the hands of a man, one of those fears you know, there's a powerful piece that pushes against that as well. So it's interesting when you consider those dynamics, right? Yeah. I think also in terms of like, as we talk about, you know, some of the structures that we have, I was asked a couple of months ago to present to a group of women. Well, it's not all women. It's, you know, women is in the title of their group, but they have men who have joined and there were some men actually when I presented who were in attendance, but who are political activists, right? And advocate for a lot of progress on social issues. And, you know, they wanted me to come talk about activism fatigue. And so it was kind of a nice evening, a good conversation. 
but I think I've heard, you know, back to your point of those two issues against women's fear of being killed, men's fear of being humiliated. You know, I was saying to them, sometimes the structures that we have in place aren't necessarily the structures that are going to bring us change. Like we can't just rely on our structures for change. Change has to happen within a person, within, you know, that person's relationships, immediate family members, maybe friendships, right? Things like that can then start to really bring about larger change than trying to take a structure and tear it down. And I don't even know if we would know how to rebuild something better. Mm -hmm. So I think it's important, you know, to really kind of do your work and, you know, work with a therapist. I mean, do what you can, if you don't have access to mental health services or can't afford them, you know, there's some great online resources that I think therapists and mental health professionals have put out there to try to help people figure out that internal story that is getting replicated and is continuing in its narrative to touch themselves and the other people that they bring into their life. Mm, Beautifully stated. Yes. May that happen. Let's hope so. I, I hold that hope along with you, my friend. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for spending this time with me and having this discussion. I think it's a important discussion. Anytime when listeners notice kind of getting caught up maybe in the hype or oversimplification of an issue to maybe pause and think about this conversation and what pieces might be missing or maybe pieces that you're skipping over for yourself that you need to maybe look at a little deeper and and, uh, do some more excavating on. Any parting words you have, Mari, before we wrap up? Uh, Gosh, I think that's beautifully put. I like that, you know, digging deep and Yeah, I think my only parting word would be just to, you know, anyone listening to our conversation today, if you are dealing with domestic violence, if this has stirred up something in you, where you're noticing some trauma that's non-integrated, perhaps you're perpetrating domestic violence right now, or you are a victim of, I would just really ask you to be brave, dig deep and reach out to the domestic violence hotline get the help that you need, get the support that you need. And if you're the person who is perpetrating, begin to have that courage inside of yourself to take all of that pain that is motivating those behaviors and find the gifts in the wound and do something better with that because you deserve better than that. And the people in your life deserve better than that. And so reach out, you know, there are people there to help you and, and access through Google. If you know, if you have internet available, but to not try and do this by yourself. You know, there are supports for you out there. So other than that, Jackie, I just want to thank you so much. I really enjoyed our conversation today. And and thank you for contacting me and the trust and also for just having the, the good foresight to think of this conversation. And hopefully we can, what we're putting out today, we can balance some of what we've been seeing socially lately. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. You know, one last thing I wanted to just add before I wrap up, Mari's jumped off. I think it's important, you know, she brought something up in her closing statement, talking about, you know, if you haven't really dug deep and kind of looked at your own story, perhaps you're perpetuating abuse. And I I think, you know, one of the things I forgot to put in my notes when I was kind of writing down notes, but I've had this thought running in my head, kind of in the background, as I've been thinking about 
the different snippets that I've seen of this trial and just kind of thinking about what I wanted to talk about in this episode is that I think it's also one of the things that we're seeing that I think is damaging as we're watching kind of the coverage and the reaction to uh, the Johnny Depp and Amber Heard trial is that we often like to think of people in categories. So either you're a victim or you're the villain. And often those categories aren't exclusive, right? You can both be a victim and a villain, and you can belong to multiple different categories. And and they're not really hard and fast categories where if you land in this one, you couldn't possibly be in another one. And I think that's one of the things we're seeing as we watch kind of the team Johnny or team Amber stuff unfold is that we're missing the point that it's not that easy and rarely are the complexity of relationships able to be divided in one side versus the other. I also think we do an incredible amount of damage when we start to divide ourselves versus me versus you, right? Or this team versus that team. We have a lot of examples in our own history and even in our recent history where that division causes incredible damage. And so I would just caution you, I don't know when the verdict from this trial is going to be released, when we will hear of it, but I just caution you in your conversations to be careful about being too reductive of something that's very complex that we've been watching that is highly complex, kind of covered, or at least the reactions have been covered in a way that is way too reductive, especially if we can say I'm team Johnny versus team Amber. We are missing the complexity and we're missing the lessons that are there for us to learn if we are going to reduce it into two types of categories. At the end of this episode, I want to remind you that your story matters. Remember, there's meaning in every chapter. Don't wait to share your story until it's finished. Until next time, Jackie. The Legal Stuff. This podcast is solely for the purpose of information and entertainment and does not constitute therapy, nor should it replace competent professional help. The Prayer of the Perfectionist. Nobody has time for perfection. We are pursuing progress. Help me to remember the only step I need to focus on is the next right step for me. Help me to remember that life is a journey. Help me to be able to separate all that I am learning from all that I have to do. Help me to remember that I am not alone. I can ask for help. Help me to strive for frequent awakenings, not mastery. I am enough. Amen.